Hi, I'm Ray Johnston and this is The Graphic Podcast. Graphic is a festival celebrating the art of graphic storytelling, animation and music at Sydney Opera House. Today's storyteller went from a heartbroken actor who had lost their direction to a certified fan favourite comic artist working at DC Comics on iconic characters like Wonder Woman, Green Lantern and Superman. She joins us today to share why she left one of the big two commercial comic houses in history to pursue creator-owned stories. Here's Nicola Scott. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. I put a rip in my jeans on the way here, so I'm going to sit like this. Um, Nice to see some familiar faces. Hello, hello. And nice to see some new ones too. Um, I'm going to waffle on about myself for about 20 minutes and then open up the room for questions. So start thinking about some questions that you want to ask, whether they're relative to um, things that I've talked about or things that you're curious about. Um, Essentially, for, for... People that are hearing my story for the first time, uh, I am a local uh, sequential artist. I live in Sydney, about 10 minutes cab ride away. Um, And I work almost exclusively in the American comic book industry. Um, I'm going to talk a bit how I got in uh, and and why. Um, Kind of for, for me, my entry point to comic books, or kind of where where I started collecting comics was kind of after I'd made my decision to make a living drawing comics. Um, and how I came about it, sort of, you know, asked backwards, was because uh, there just wasn't a lot of comic books in my life. I, I wasn't really aware of comic books when I was a kid. Um, I started off... Uh, as a kid in the 70s and lucky enough to be part of that generation that just had a lot of superhero TV and film happening. Um, There was the Batman reruns from the 60s left over, there was Superman, there was Star Wars, there was Electra Woman and Dinah Girl, the Isis and Shazam hours, Super Friends cartoon, uh, all these great shows. And the most significant one for me, of course, was Linda Carter as Wonder Woman. Um, I saw her when I was four, and I was all in, all in. Um, I come from an artistic family, so drawing was something that was just... I was given paintbrushes and pens at a really young age. And I just was always encouraged to draw. My mother was an artist, my grandmother was an artist, so there was a culture of art at home. And my mother would go off to life drawing classes when I was young and instead of leaving me behind with my elder sisters who would probably abandon me, um, she would take me along and instead of giving me a toy to play with or some distraction, she'd give me charcoal and some paper and say, draw the model. And I probably spent the first few years just kind of putting Wonder Woman boots and stuff on all of her beautiful fleshy women. But that was kind of how I started drawing superheroes for myself and my best friend. Uh, We would sort of watch shows and catch up at Paddington Markets on Saturdays and go, oh my God, did you see the most recent episode of whatever it was that we were hooked on at that given moment? And we would sort of make up stories and I would draw them, but I would draw them like picture books because I just didn't know about comics. Um, 
I did start, as I was sort of getting a little older and, and further into my life, I did start uh, seeing comic books every now and then at news agencies, but more often than not, they would be Marvel comics with like Thor and Hulk and characters that I just wasn't familiar with and I just didn't feel like they were for me. Very occasionally I'd see a, a superhero that I did recognise on, on the cover of a comic book, like there would be Wonder Woman in a Justice League book and I'd be like, oh, that's kind of like the Super Friends, right? I'd pick it up and it would be full of all these random characters that I'd never heard of before. And I think, okay, I don't know, I don't know what's going on here. Uh, I can remember once when I was about 11, I saw a Wonder Woman book and I picked it up and I flipped through it and it was like, these people have got it wrong. They don't know what they're doing. You know, <laughs> this is not like the TV show at all. Um, because I was so ignorant to the fact that this was the source material. Um, a term that I didn't learn until I was about a year into drawing comics professionally. Um, so I sort of really came to comics late and the decision to draw comics apropos of really kind of nothing was because I could draw and I could sew and this is like the very early 2000s. Um, I was just about to turn 30 and having that sort of uh, quarter life crisis of what the fuck am I doing <laughs> with my life. Um, and spending about six months kind of working out the, the, the things that I could do and I knew I wanted to pursue a creative career, but I also knew it had to pay the bills. It was like, I'm not just going to chase something for the love of it, I want, I want it to be a practical choice. Um, which sounds pretty heartless, but at this point, you know, the thing that I had invested all my love and heart in was acting and that just wasn't happening for me. So I kind of put that in a box. It had broke my heart too many times. So it was like, now I was being practical. What, what the hell am I going to do with the skill set that I have? And obviously I knew I could draw, despite the fact that I hadn't really drawn very much in my 20s. Um, and when I had narrowed it down to drawing and working out what it was that I could do with that to make a living. Um, I can remember quite clearly on a Sunday morning, sitting down having breakfast and uh, thinking while I was having my, my tea and toast, what, what do I want to draw? If I have to draw the same thing all day, every day, because that's what a job is, you just have to grind all day, every day. What do I want to draw? And I was thinking, God, it would be funny if I could just draw Wonder Woman. I used to love drawing Wonder Woman all the time. In fact, when I'm sitting on the phone, this is back in the days when you had landlines, um, I would just sort of sit there and draw Wonder Woman's face over and over, or her hair, or, you know, whatever. And it was like, as I was thinking that straight away, it was like, oh, my God, that's a real job. That someone's got that job. It's drawing comic books. Holy crap, comic books are full of superheroes, and I kind of love superheroes. I used to love superheroes and never grew out of superheroes. That's what I'm going to do. And so, apropos of absolutely nothing, knowing nothing about the industry, nothing about comic books, nothing about the, the art of sequential art, um, I made this big decision that I was going to draw comics for the rest of my life. And it probably took me about three years into working at DC Comics before I realised why I love my job. Because to start off with, for those first couple of years trying to break in, and then after I had broken in, 
I was just doing it because I wanted it to be a living and it was kind of fun. I got to work from home, I got to work in my pajamas, I got to draw things that I felt really nostalgic about. And I was working creatively and I knew that that was enough to, to love. But it was probably about three years into working at DC full-time, drawing sequential art that I realised it's the sequential storytelling that I love. This is the bit that I love because I get really bored when I'm drawing covers. I get really bored if I'm drawing pinups. When I'm drawing the story, that's when it becomes really exciting to me because there's interpretation and there's nuance and there's uh, subtext. And, and that's all the kind of stuff that I was finding that I was loving. And this is why now it's become something that I've been incredibly passionate about. Uh, but I, again, just came to it through the back door. Um, rather than sort of pursuing it throughout my life. So after I'd made this decision, apropos of nothing to draw comics for a living, um, my first protocol was to go to a comic book store because it's the only thing I could think to do. And I started buying comics. I bought things of characters that I knew and I liked. Um, I started looking at artist names and thinking, OK, I need to remember that person's name. Um, and after a while, I started talking to the chap who worked at the comic book store. His name is Doug Holgate, and he's now become a great mate of mine. And he is, if, if you know, sort of sequential art uh, created by Australian artists and writers, he's one of the best. He does this sort of beautiful stories that he writes for himself, or he collaborates with writers, and he's been published all over the world. He's fantastic. And when I met him 15 years ago, he was working in a comic book store. And he was my first port of call when I started asking questions. Do you know anyone that does this? And he'd be like, oh, I can't do it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You work in a comic book store. What do you mean you do this? And he'd say, I write little stories and I draw them. And then I sell them at conventions. And I was like, hold the phone. What are you talking about? What are conventions? And he was like, there's one in a couple of weeks. You should come along. You know, do you have a portfolio? And I was like, sure, because by this stage, it was like six months after I'd made this decision and I'd spent six months kind of painting, really. I, was, I, I wasn't yet doing interiors. I wasn't doing sequentials. I was just kind of painting pictures of Wonder Woman. I had one picture of Batman, one picture of Superman and about five paintings of Wonder Woman and that was it. <laughs> it's just ridiculous, right? And so I, I took them along to this convention and I sh saw him there and he was like, give me a look at your book. And so I showed him and he was like, oh, right, okay, so you can draw. This is nice, and he introduced me to a few other people who've become really good mates of mine. And while I was there, I got a job doing covers for what at the time was the only publisher in Australia, a company called Phosphorescent Comics, which isn't around anymore, um, on a book by a now great mate of mine, Christian Reed, called The Watch. And it was two covers, and I was bursting at the seams because it was like, oh my God, I just got my first job, that's amazing. But I also came away from that day, apart from the fact that I was bouncing off the walls and calling my best mate going, holy shit, this is happening. Um, I came away from that day going, but I'm pretty sure I just got the only job in this country that someone can give me. So my next round of questions was to everybody, so you guys all write and draw your own things. How does one get paid to do this to make a living? And 
their general response was, oh, forget it, you have to go to America. So I was like, okay, I'm going to America, who's coming with me? And at the time, the, the best news source that I had, this was long before I knew how to turn a computer on and before I had an email account, um, was Wizard Magazine, and I had flipped through Wizard Magazine, and there was a half-page ad for something called San Diego Comic-Con, the biggest convention in the world, and I was like, I'm going to that because it's the biggest. Um, and so I talked to a couple of mates of mine into coming with me. Christian Reed came that first year, and Scott Fraser came with me as well. And we went thinking we were going to be hot shit. This is going to, you know, we're, we're, we're all set. You know, we've had something published. We're, we're working. You know, we're, we're the, the hot new things from Australia. They're going to love us. And as we saw it sort of through the buildings from a distance, we reassessed our, um, our expectations for ourselves because it, it was enormous. It was, at the time, quite a bit smaller than it is now, but it was still quite a lot bigger than anything we have here now. Uh, and this was a good 13 years ago. And we went along to that. I was terrified. I had what I now know is an absolute beginner's portfolio. It showed that I could draw, but it also showed I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and it took me until the last day before I got the courage to start showing my work to publishers. And that was really because it was like, I've paid all this money to come all this way. Time to suck it up and bite the bullet and start showing it to people. So I approached the Wonder Woman editor and he flipped through my book and went, uh. and he found one picture of Wonder Woman. There was a lot of Wonder Woman in there, but he found one picture of Wonder Woman. He went, that, that, do more of that, bye. And that was the best response I got <laughs> at that show. And so I, I, you know, at the end of the, the weekend when we sort of got together and how did everybody go, Christian was like, that was soul destroying. I'm never doing this again. Scott Fraser was like, I'm out, I'm out. And I was like, really? Because I think I have to come back next year because now I think I know what I need to do. And so that's what I did. The, I spent the next 12 months kind of prepping for the next big show and during that year was when I had made the decision, actually, I think I want to do sequentials because that's where the jobs are. If I'm doing interiors, there are more jobs in interiors than there are for cover artists. Um, and the people who are doing cover art, like uh, Adam Hughes, are shitting all over me and I'll never catch up. So it was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do sequentials. That means I have to draw backgrounds and buildings and cars and five panels page and, oh, okay, just suck it up. You're just going to have to do this because that's where the work is. That's where the work is. And so I went back the next year with uh, a pretty dense portfolio. Uh, and that year uh, I did get a couple of little gigs, um, but I also got some great guidance in how to construct a proper portfolio. Um, and why that's important, because I had yet to occur to me that an editor even wants to see me or my portfolio, um, and that when they do, I'm really invading their space, and they don't really, they just, they don't want to invest in you at all. So you've got to make yourself as, as accommodating and as easy for them as possible, um, and treat it like a job interview, which then 
kind of unwilling to give because they don't necessarily have a job to give you. Um, but I came away with a pretty firm idea of what a portfolio needed to look like. And during that next year, I worked on those few jobs that I was given. Uh, I had met my first big-time professional who sat down with me and my portfolio and said, OK, this is what you're doing wrong. This is what you need to start concentrating on. And it was fundamental. It was absolutely the basics. I hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me yet that buildings don't look like standing up building blocks with windows drawn on them that, you know, that might, might look like sophisticated play school drawings rather than life. And he was saying, go out, you know, on a high-rise building in New York City and take photos of rooftops because if you're drawing Batman on the rooftops, they don't look like this. They look like a mess. So it's like, you know, use your eyes more, use your skills more, start Googling things. And that was when I was like, okay, computers, computers. Got to learn how to turn on a computer. Um, to this day, I still don't do anything digitally because computers freak me out. I'm very old school. I'm still pencils and rulers and French curves. Um, but that sort of real guidance from someone who knew the industry really well uh, set me up for my next San Diego, where I went back again. And that year, I got a job drawing Star Wars by the guy who edits Star Wars on the floor. And that was huge for me, because one, I was going to get paid. Uh, and two, it was like something that I can say to all of my, my friends who have no idea why I'm doing this in the first place. Um, I can say, I'm working on Star Wars. And they go, I've heard of Star Wars. And, <laughs> and so that was kind of really exciting. And it just kind of rolled on from there. A couple of years later, I got my job at DC Comics, which was the, the mighty grail for me. And I had been there for about three years, just discovering that I love the storytelling, that that is the thing that I'm actually getting for myself the most out of. When it started to occur to me that there needs to be something to do next, what's the next step if this is going to be a career, um, I hadn't really thought anything beyond being at DC Comics, which had been, from the very beginning, my goal. And so that kind of came about because I was sort of starting to meet a lot more local uh, American comic book artists through sort of working professionally, going to cons. Um, and I would start seeing people that have had really interesting, diverse careers, and then people who are really big in the 90s and are still doing the same thing. And I was like, I've worked seven days a week. I've worked really hard, long hours to do a monthly book. I'm already in my 30s. I don't want to be working this hard when I'm in my 50s and my 60s. I want to start seeing sort of some way to grow my career other than just doing more of the same. What's going to be the next step? So I started asking people, you know, and looking at various careers, you know, what's the next step? How do I get to the next step? And I think because I was always asking kind of really naive and, and dumb questions of professionals who were kind of charmed by the fact that I was just sort of winging in uh, going, yeah, I can do this. Stand back, everybody. Um, th 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 they were kind of charmed by the fact that I was just sort of so willing to, to learn that they started sort of saying, well, 
what do you want to do after working at DC? And I was like, oh, fuck, there's an after, right. Um, work at Marvel, you know, is that the, is that the next thing? <laughs> <laughs> but by this stage, you know, my, my, my horizons were starting to open and uh, it started becoming very clear that at some point I'm going to have to do creator-owned because that's where you own your property. And that was a whole new concept for me. I, I was thinking creator-owned was indie and that no one's going to get paid and no one's going to make a living unless you hit the jackpot. And it was like, I, I'm not that much of a gambler. I don't know that I want to hit the jackpot. I just want to be employed. Um, but the more I started sort of investigating, the more I was like, actually, all the people that I know that are doing really interesting things are doing their own thing. And the stuff that I'm starting to like reading, you know, the stuff that's sort of really starting to appeal to me more and more is, is the independent stuff, because that's, that's where people are really getting to let loose. And the longer I was with DC, the more I realised, oh, there are creative barriers, the, the higher up the food chain I got, the more aware of where those barriers were, when to pick your battles, when to be a good team player, how to fight them when you want to go in, you know, I'm not doing this. Um, and the more it sort of became clear that the, the career that I think I want, where I think I'm going to get the most satisfaction is not doing this. Um, is moving into independence. So uh, a mate of mine, Mr. Greg Rucker, um, who I was already a fan of because as I was starting to get into the industry, he started writing Wonder Woman. It became my favourite run. It still is my favourite run. He became my favourite writer to the point where I used some of his scripting as part of a portfolio piece, which he then saw online contacted me and said, I want you to work on Wonder Woman with me, which is, you know, one of those big moments of, holy fuck, all my dreams might come true. Of course, it didn't happen because the editors were just like, no, 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 this girl's too green. Um, but uh, I have actually since then had the editor apologise to me every year when I see him at San Diego going, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I didn't let you in. Um, but, you know, retrospect. Um, but he, he was sort of instrumental in helping me get my job at DC in the first place. Uh, those few pages of Wonder Woman art that were from Greg's script that I posted online on a particular website that I was kind of talked into posting the stuff on, that opened me up to Greg Rucker, Gail Simone, uh, Jeff Johns, and a whole bunch of other sort of high-profile DC creators who then started campaigning in the DC office to get me a job, which I didn't know about until I got my job at DC. And they started saying, um, we're sick of hearing your name in the office, it was about time we gave you a job. Which was like, <laughs> woo, thanks wheels turning that I didn't know about. Um, but by the time I was sort of getting this idea that it was, at some point I'm gonna have to leave DC, Greg was leaving DC. Um, and he was like, come with me. And I was like, I'm, I'm kind of not really ready yet. Part of it was fear. I was still sort of educating myself on what the independent industry was all about. And part of it was because I didn't feel like I was done yet at DC. I still felt like there were, there were achievements to be met. I'd been only working on fringe books, uh, girl teams, kid teams, fringe teams, I'd had a lot of fun, but what I really wanted was, uh, 
after doing a lot of team books, I, I wanted either like a big testosterone-y boy team or I wanted a single character that I thought I was a good match for. And when the new 52 rolled around and I didn't get any of the things that I asked for and I was like, oh crap, <laughs> maybe this is where they slowly but surely just pushed me aside. Um, uh, they ended up offering me what ended up being my biggest book at DC, which was Earth 2, which was exactly, you know, if it wasn't going to be a solo character, if I was going to do another team again, I wanted a big, big boy book. And I got a really big boy book, which was Earth 2, which is essentially the alternate universe to the primary universe. Going way down a, 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 a CPU Comics rabbit hole here. But essentially we had one book to do a whole universe worth of stories. Uh, and we got to really fuck around with it. Um, the, my first uh, job when I, was given that, when I was given that book, my first assignment was to redesign Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman. That's like a bit of a dream job right there. And as soon as I got the script for the first issue, it was like, oh, and we're killing them in the first issue. Woo! So it was like, we're really living on the edge over here uh, in Earth 2. So that was kind of really fun. And while I was on that series, I was like, okay, I can actually see that this is about as high up at DC as I'm ever going to get. Even though they're prestige books, I was pretty sure they were never going to get me one because in my goal to be as employable as possible, I had shown that I could deliver. I could deliver a monthly book. Uh, and one of the things that people, I suppose, don't really know is that someone who can deliver a monthly book month after month after month is kind of rare. And so, therefore, when they find artists that can do that over and over and over again, they kind of keep you there. So it doesn't matter how good you can be. It's like if you can deliver that monthly book, that's really where they'd like to keep you. Um, so it was like, okay, I'm now on one of the big books at DC that comes out monthly. I've only got lateral moves. It's like the only thing that I think is bigger than Earth 2 is Justice League or, you know, one of the characters that I want, like Wonder Woman or Nightwing or Catwoman. But, you know, maybe now's the time to, to leap while things are good uh, and see if I can take some of that audience with me. So at New York Comic Con a couple of years ago, it's happening right now in, in New York. Um, I was there and I called Greg over and said, Greg, I think I'm about ready. Do you want to work, on me, work with me on something? And he was like, yep. And I was like, what have you got cooking? And he was like, well, you know that project that I mentioned about four years ago? <laughs> I was like, oh, the one about witches? And he was like, yep. And I was like, that one. And I was like, oh my God, I'm all in. So from that point on, we started talking hardcore about what for me is my next step, what for him is just his next book. But uh, I think the enthusiasm that I brought into it and the fact that he and I have been talking by the stage for about 10 years working together, uh, about working together, um, we suddenly got all this energy of, you know, creative non-stop talking about where we wanted this story to go, how we wanted it to feel, you know, all, all, all that sort of great um, collaborative brainstorming that you just don't get the opportunity to do when you're working in mainstream, where essentially 
you get a script, you might have to design some characters, but your contribution is designing and drawing and layouts and get it done, get it done, get it done. We got to spend a year kind of building this world together, Skyping every couple of weeks, talking about what research we were bringing to the table, getting out all of my old witch books, because when it comes to occult stuff, which is a kind of my jam, and they had been since I was a little kid, and I was like, oh my God, I get to, I get to sort of really delve into a whole new universe. So I finally left DC officially mid last year, but um, things sort of trail on and I ended up doing a whole lot more stuff. So it was at the beginning of this year that I started working on uh, my series with Greg, which is called Black Magic, which comes out in a couple of weeks. Woo, very excited. Um, and it is by far the most satisfying thing that I've ever worked on big part because of the collaboration, but also because in doing the storytelling, the, the, the sequential nature of the art, um, I'm getting to approach the art in a completely different way that I'd never have gotten a chance to do while I was at DC. Um, but it's that sort of, the, the, the buffer time that we've given ourselves has given us, us this sort of real freedom to create and narrow down where, where you know, I'm, I'm used to dealing with uh, a 60 to 70 a year history of characters that I have to sort of filter through and get ideas out quickly. Now we're getting to build something from the ground up, which I've never really got the chance to follow through on before. You know, I've sort of created ideas before, but actually sort of getting to deliver the detail um, has become by far the most fascinating thing that I've ever participated in and I can't believe that this gets to be my job and I can't believe that we get to own something that gets what is now, you know, I'm, I'm not used to things having a long shelf life, but this is something that uh, I feel like I can rest my hat on and define myself by because it's it's going to be not just sort of part of my catalogue of things that I've done, but something that is a big part of me uh, that will outlast everything else I've done because it's not going to get, you know, undone by the next writer or the next artist. So that's kind of my story <laughs> and, and where I'm at now. You can see on the slides, this is just sort of samples of work that I've been doing over the last few years, stuff at DC. Um, a few pages here from Black Magic, which there's no more that I can show from Black Magic at the moment because uh, in the couple of releases that we've had come out so far, I've sh we've shown about as much of the story as we can show without actually starting to give shit away. Um, so I'm just going to open up the floor now to questions. If you've got anything that you want to ask in terms of process or career or uh, the industry, uh, now's the time to get into the nitty-gritty. Hi. Um, what advice would you have for someone who do, wants to do what you do? In terms of... As being of a comic book penciler. Okay. Uh, working in America for the American market? Mm, yes. You've got to be really sure that you want to do it for a start mm. because it is a, it's a commitment. You know, I'm, I'm now in my early 40s. I don't have kids. 
uh, I don't know if I could do this job if I had kids. Right. Uh, it's probably a little different for writers because you spend a lot of time marinating ideas before you start writing. But for me, it's like I have to actually sit at my desk for, you know, eight to ten hours a day. Um, so that's, that's a reality that you need to consider. And then you have to... I, I think... I, I always sort of suggest that the best way to sort of plot your course is to work out where in the industry you see yourself fitting in comfortably. So for me, it was like Wonder Woman was the reason why I started to do this. So it was like, okay, DC, that's where Wonder Woman is. So I just sort of plotted my, my, my ship towards DC and started sailing in that direction. And every time something sort of led me sort of slightly astray, I, I sort of took on a few gigs here and there where I was illustrating, um, doing illustrations in books rather than sequential art, or I would find myself doing short stories in graphic novel anthologies. And it was like, that's all great for sort of portfolio building and experience, but it was like I had to keep course correcting to DC. And from... That worked for me, you know. I, I, uh, you know, I went from that point of having zero idea, zero contacts, no real concept of what it actually entails to be a comic book artist, to getting a job at DC in four and a half years. And that was just because I kept being conscious of course correcting. Um, so it's like, you know, if you love Star Wars uh, and you want to draw comics, Star Wars is now being published by Marvel, so that's kind of where I suggest you direct yourself. Um, you know, superheroes were my jam. I didn't really... Uh, like, I like sci-fi, but I've never really sort of been... Uh, I, I've never been driven to draw sci-fi before. Um, and I don't mind horror, but I don't really care. Um, and what I learned really quickly was in the American industry, all the superheroes belong to, super, to DC and Marvel. And the rest of the companies deal with uh, sci-fi and horror and all, all the other things that I was just like, oh, fuck, I'm going to be drawing sci-fi and horror. <laughs> okay. But that was kind of the experience that I had to build up and the credits that I needed to build up um, until I got that job at DC. So it's kind of... I would suggest pick where you want to steer your ship. And then, like, for me, I started drawing like a DC artist, which is probably not the best idea, but then I didn't grow up drawing comics and creating a style for myself. It took me a while to sort of uh, find my style, and I felt like by the time I got to DC, I was only right at the cusp of really understanding what my style is. Um, so, you know, pick a lane and try and stick to it as much as possible. Um, or if, you know, if independent comics are really where your heart is, then use that as your slow build. Start sort of working, if you're an artist, not a writer, start working with writers um, and start pitching your ideas. If you want, like, further specifics, let me know. Hi, Nicola. Hi. 
I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about your um, <clears throat> sorry process of collaborating with Greg. Does he send you full scripts? Do you does he give you an outline of the story? How does it work between the two of you? Yeah. Okay. Um, when I when, when we sort of started actively collaborating, he'd already written the first two issues, and so. Uh, I spent that sort of six months after I'd officially left DC, but I was still sort of doing bits and pieces of work for them and not quite ready to start. I spent that six months talking with him, doing the work that I had in front of me, but also just reading over the scripts over and over and over again, looking for the the details because, you know, we were, we were building this world from scratch and it had to feel like it was lived in from the word go. We weren't inheriting a universe. We were creating one. Um, and so that just sort of... The, the process came about by just sort of talking through it a lot. We just... Every couple of weeks we'd talk about things. I, I would sort of start from a visual standpoint. Straight off the bat I was like, okay... You know, your description for our lead character is that she has black hair, wears black clothes and rides a motorbike. Um, I've seen that character 50 million times. How can we make her different? Um, you know, that's my job. That's the beginnings of my job. Um, so I sort of started talking about, you know, I, I want her to sort of not just be a goth girl. I wanted her to sort of be a little out of time because of this and this and... This is how I think I'm, you know, it took me a while to sort of find what I felt like she should look like. You know, that came from just drawing her face over and over. But we, we, we just sort of started talking about the world so I could get a clear idea of what he had in mind. But also he could get an idea of how I was interpreting the information I was getting, both from the scripts and from our conversations. Um, so at one point I sort of said to him, look, I think I want to approach... Rowan differently to how I originally pictured her uh, personality-wise. And he was like, ooh, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, I think she's a lighter character than we're possibly giving her credit for. Um, you know, I've, I've read through the script. I've, I, I tend to act out all my scenes. I play all the characters and I act them out, trying to sort of find nuances and, and find subtext. And... As I was talking about that, he was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense, that's perfect. So it just sort of comes through a lot of talking and, uh, you know, he would go off and do some research, I would go off and do some research. Um, I spent a week in Portland at his place last year and then again this year, by which stage I was already, you know, a couple of issues in. Um, but it just sort of came about from talking, he would sort of send me a few notes, I would sort of send him a few pictures, we'd talk about that a little bit more, and slowly but surely, it's kind of like carving something, you know, you, you don't know it until you see it, and the trick is to not carve away too much. Um, so, you know, we'd sort of start stripping back, stripping back, stripping back, it was like, oh, we've lost something, it was like, what was it that... that that we've now lost, that we need to get back. Oh, it was that bit, yeah. So, okay, let's let's think about... I'm talking so abstract here at the moment because I don't know how much I can give away. I kind of follow Greg's lead every time he says something. I'm like, oh, we can talk about that, okay. Um, so it, it just sort of came about from a lot of talking, a lot of talking. Um, 
Certainly one of the things that's in the back of our first issue is a family tree of our lead character, Rowan Black. Um, and that came about because we've been talking about what her lineage is, the very specifics of it, which will probably take a little while to play out in the story and for, for the readers to become aware of the significance of certain lives. Um, but we know, because we've been talking about it for ages, and when he was here a couple of weeks ago for Oz Comic Con, we were sitting in uh, Golden Century in, Chi in Chinatown having dinner while he's got his notebook out and he's writing down the basics of some dates. Like, he'd already sort of done a little bit of a loose structure and we were going through names and we were sort of saying, what about, you know, what about this and how about this? And round about this area is when uh, this was happening, right? So how about, you know, we were really sort of plotting the depth of this history, even through all this talking, but he was, at this point, we were sort of talking quite specifics because I knew he was going to go back to the hotel and write it down. And about an hour and a half after I got home, he sent me the email going, here's the family tree. I was like, holy shit, there it is. We were just talking about that. And within about 48 hours, Eric Troutman, our graphic designer, had put it into the family tree design that we'd sort of, uh, that he'd offered a few, uh, a few weeks beforehand that we were like, oh, that's beautiful. Let's, let's do it just like that. And suddenly we had this family tree. It was like, that feels rich now. It feels really solid and earned and... and it is because we've been talking about it for so long, but finally you have to get to the point where you put it on paper. And as soon as it's, as soon as it's on paper and it's approved and I'm like, yep, I'm in, and Greg's like, yep, I'm in, and Janine Schaefer, our editor, has said, yep, everything's approved. It's like, okay, now that's canon. That's the real deal now. Um, and by the time it goes, we've been changing things up until the last minute. Our lead character, Rowan, up until about two months ago, she had a, uh, just before the announcement, like a week before we announced the book, she had a different name. And that came about because uh, our graphic designer said, I just want to remind you guys, because we'd, we'd heard about it, but we, we hadn't investigated it properly, that the character has the same name as a porn actress. <laughs> and I just want to remind you guys, before we let this out, that maybe that's not such a great idea. And because it's witchcraft and, and the kind of, the, our approach to witchcraft, we're going really old school, very grounded, very earthy, dirty, real, as real as we can be, magic. Um, names are really important. So we couldn't just sort of go, oh, well, let's just change a name to some random thing. We had a like three hour Skype session with five of us chiming in, rattling off what possible names we could use, why, what the origins were of these names. This was one of the most ridiculous but also really satisfying conversations because we were brainstorming all together, all in different time zones on Skype, trying to, you know, knowing that the deadline is now. We need to know what this is now, now, now. We need, to, we need a name, a brand new name. She's had this name for five years and we can't use it anymore. We need a brand new name right now. Um, I'm so much happier with the name we have now, not just because she's not a porn star, but because <laughs> the, the, 
the history and the, the way we've legitimised the name in the context of the greater story makes so much more sense. Hello. Hi. Hello. I'm fascinated by what you were saying about the build environment when you talked about Batman off of buildings. How do you describe or how do you decide what you're going to draw the built environment and the cities that your characters inhabit? Well, for, for that particular, this was a piece that I did for my portfolio. I was drawing a, a three-page Batgirl scene. And the first image, oh, quite like the thing that's on screen now, it was like a, a, a three-point perspective shot looking down at the streets of Gotham City. So right there is my context. It's like, okay, I'm drawing Gotham City. Uh, Batgirl is in the foreground looking over the edge of a building and that should have given me an indication of what kind of buildings I should draw. But because this was my second or it was my second year at San Diego, uh, and only my I was only drawing for like a year and a half um, by this point, I know that I had had a sort of big exponential, uh, a, a big um, what's it called, a learning curve, like the six months prior to that show, I'd, I'd had a really big learning curve where I'd felt myself improve. But as soon as I showed it to my sort of comic industry mate, a guy named uh, Jimmy Palmiotti, he took a look at my buildings and just said, okay, your perspective is great, but um, one, that doesn't look like Gotham City, and two, those don't look like buildings. You know, they just don't look like buildings. Um, they, I was just sort of drawing Lego blocks, you know? It was like, it was kind of really ridiculous. And so he was like, start referencing, get some photo reference, look at architecture. And so I, I still have a pretty significant catalogue of various types of architecture. Um, I don't really use that reference so much anymore. Um, now I'll sort of Google image specifics if I have a specific building or, or era of building or region of building. Um, like just the other day I was painting a 13th century French cathedral and Greg had said, like this, and sent me a Google image and it was like, okay, so I looked at more images of that particular cathedral and then I looked up, uh, you know, 13th century French cathedrals and got sort of other bits and pieces of architectural information and then sort of created something different, something new. And that's kind of... It's the, the, the trick I feel like, you know, certainly with the art style that I find, found myself doing, which is what I can't help myself but do, which is generally pretty he detail heavy, is um, you have to not pull the reader out by getting it wrong. Um, so that means if I'm drawing Gotham City, which I've only done a couple of times professionally, that means really gothic architecture, that means gargoyles, that means stone, it means deco buildings that are about as modern as you want to get other than the odd sort of glossy skyscraper, but they've got to be few and further between. And then you start getting into what area of Gotham City are we in? Are we in Old Town? Are we in, you know, it's like when you fall down that hole, it can get really specific, but those specifics can give you a lot of guidance. Hello. Hello. Um, in regards to working for DC Comics, yeah. do you have to physically be in the DC Comic office or have they been known to outsource artists from overseas using the internet? I've been working 
the entire time I was at DC Comics from my sunroom in my apartment in Potts Point. Um, yes, it, it used to be the case, uh, you know, in decades past that you needed to be in New York. Um, it would be ideal for DC if you're in the bullpen in the office, but that really hasn't been the case for a long time. Um, and certainly as soon as the internet was around, that just took that out of the equation. When I started at DC Comics, they hadn't worked with anyone from Australia before on a monthly book, so there was a little bit of fear going into it, and we were still FedExing artwork back and forth. Certainly for the first three or four years that I was at DC Comics, that was how we would send art. I would FedEx half an issue, and they would receive it at the office, then FedEx it to the Inca, who was interstate somewhere, and he would FedEx it back to them, and they would scan it in the office. It's a long process. Um, and when I was working on Blackest Night, Wonder Woman, which was a big sort of DC Comics event five years ago or something, six, whenever it was, it was a long time ago, um, the turnover for that was so fast, the volume of work was so much for the company, um, that they kind of needed every, all, all that sort of FedExing time, that week that it would take for art to, they, there was no time for that, so they bought me a scanner. They were just like, Nicola, just go and buy a scanner, send us the, the receipt. And I was like, okay. And so that was when I bought my first day three scanner um, because it, there was just no time for that. Um, and it is, it is definitely one of those industries, because it's small, uh, it really helps for the... not the editors that give you the job to know you necessarily, because the editor that gave me my job I'd never met before. But it really helps to go there. That, that's why I was going every year, and I still go every year, because that FaceTime is how they get to know you and get to trust you. You know, just sort of seeing your work online, uh, they're unlikely to give you a job when there's someone right there who they can give that job to if they happen to have a job available. Um, they want to build up a rapport, um, certainly as a company with you at the very least, um, and see a history of work. So that was why I was going over there every year. I still go over at least once a year, and it pretty much always pays off. Every single time I've been there uh, getting that incidental FaceTime, and it's generally incidental FaceTime. You know, I might be at the bar, I might be having dinner, I might be in the DC green room. Um, every career leap that I've had or every new big step um, that I've had has been just through incidentally being around or saying, oh, can I put my hand up for that? And they'd say, yep. Or, you know, the head of the company would say, Nicola, what are you working on right now? And I'd be like, oh, I'm working on this. And he'd say, do you want to do this? And I'd be like, yes, let's do that. So pretty much every time I've been to, for me, it's San Diego. San Diego's become a bit of a nightmare now um, for comics, but it's still paying off for me. So I'm going to continue going to that show every year because it's a really fun holiday. Um, but it's also... Uh, that incidental FaceTime is, I think, paramount. I think... Hello? Yep. Hi. <laughs> I, I was just wondering, 
redesigning Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman and the rest of the cast. Yeah. How many concepts did you have to go through? I mean, especially Batman who, I mean, you've got your own statue of it now and everything is very unique. Uh, yeah, how many did you have to go through before the editors finally said, I like it? Um, well, for Earth 2 in general, because it was like suddenly a whole new universe with a whole lot of characters, um, and it was like the, the second wave of the new 52, um, they had uh, Joe Prado and Cully Hammer kind of doing redesigns of everyone from the beginning. So they were sort of throwing in general ideas from the very beginning. And by the time I came to start on the book, they had f finished submitting ideas and they had ideas for Dr. Fate, they had ideas for uh, Green Lantern and they had ideas for The Flash. In fact, The, f the Flash, there was about f three or four different versions for each character. And one of the versions that Joe Prado did was of the Flash, was one of the most beautiful Flash designs I've ever seen in my life. We didn't get to use it. Um, because there's this ridiculous approval process. Um, and the, the little bit of shade that I'm going to throw is um, that the big wigs at the company who are also creators, who are also artists, they get uh, a character design pay, um, which I don't get because that's part of my job on the book, um, and they would then get their designs made into skins for the games, um, used in action figures and this, that and the other, and so I didn't get to design The Flash or um, Green Lantern. Uh, they were done by Joe, refined by Jim, refined. Um, that, that <laughs> when we got the Flash design, which was literally th the day I was going to start drawing the Flash in his costume. Oh, look, there's the original design. Uh, James Robinson and I tried to sneak it back in. Because <laughs> <laughs> James's opinion of the design that we ended up having to use was full of expletives and... <laughs> He was not happy, and I was not happy either, but I was kind of like, mm, what James said. Um, but, you know, it then becomes your job to, you know, they're not going to change their mind. That's what the design is. You just then have to make it work. But with Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman, they were my designs. And because we were dealing with a fresh universe at the time, they were going to be the only superheroes in that universe. Um, besides Supergirl and Robin, um, I kind of decided to, okay, let's take it back to the roots and make sci uh, Superman a, a science-based suit that was very sort of superheroic, iconic and, and basic and make Batman a detective and very grounded and earthy and make Wonder Woman a warrior. And so the Superman design was... Uh, I submitted two ideas which were pretty close to each other and the one thing that I was really fixated on was my design for the shield, the S-Shield. Um, I wanted something that was really sort of elegant. It ended up being very similar to what the Man of Steel shield is. Um, 
that was that was a, a happy coincidence. Um, the Wonder Woman design, uh, I submitted two ideas for that, and they were again variations of the same thing because I'd been sitting on this Wonder Woman design for ages, and I really wanted that to be the design. Um, those two only got tweaked very subtly, um, and I kind of tweaked them back once I was drawing the book. <laughs> um, but Batman, he was a little more uh, Gotham by Gaslamp kind of look the first time around, and they were like, new. We want more hardcore, high-tech, uh, still grounded, but make it sort of a little more military, blah, 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 blah. And so uh, at that same point, I had Jim throwing designs at me, a couple of which were really not good. Um, but what we ended up with was, was like this sort of amalgamation of some of the previous things that I'd designed and a couple of the ideas that Jim had sort of thrown my way. You know, you've got to play nice with the boss. And, you know, I sort of found something that I felt was really different, um, but that I could live with. Because it ends up being your name on the book. I think we've got time for one more very quick question. Very quick, very, 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 very quick. quick. <laughs> Howdy. Um, you said before that witches are your jam. Yeah. And historically, witches have been linked with persecuted women and feminism. What was it about the mythology of witches specifically that made you want to get involved with black magic and give your spin on, on that historic story? Um, witches were kind of my jam. I think I've kind of discovered what it was about witches, or I started to sort of find what it was about witch, witchcraft that really fascinated me when I was about 13 or 14, doing a school assignment on uh, witch burnings and witchcraft. And it was the first time that I was starting to think of witches as anything beyond, you know, Sabrina and, and Samantha Stevens. Um, you know, it was sort of like, oh, it's really dirty. It's really kind of messy and it's about blood and it's about nail clippings and it's about iron and grave dirt and all this kind of stuff. And that kind of really fascinated me. And so I, I would then look for fiction about witches. Um, as well as sort of more information about witches. So I started sort of, I've never sort of practised Wicca or anything, but I've got all the books. <laughs> um, because, you know, I'm not, I'm not really a doer, you know. I, I was a goth when I was 13, but only because I liked the look. And as soon as I was hanging out with the, the people, I was like, oh, man, you guys are depressing. Um, so it was, you know, it was like I, I loved all the, the stuff and I loved reading about it, but I just couldn't commit to doing anything about it. So I've got all this stuff. Um, and whenever it came to sort of finding fiction about witches, there was so rarely that I would find something that actually spoke to what that history is, that is very sort of... It's very, like, I, I didn't think about it at the time as being a 
part of feminism, but it has absolutely become a big part of the direction of the book and certainly my own personal agenda. You know, feminism was something that I didn't really need to... Uh, that I've, I didn't really properly consider until I was probably in my mid-twenties because I come from uh, a sort of woman family. You know, I've got sisters and female cousins and there are about three guys in my family and they're the ones that have married in to give birth to more women. <laughs> and, you know, a third of the women in my family are gay, so that brings in more women, and there's just a lot of estrogen in my family. Um, and, you know, my mum and my aunt and all of their friends are all sort of, you know, loudmouth, bossy, pain-in-the-ass women, of which I'm very happy to be part of. And so it never occurred to me that, uh, empowerment wasn't just there, you know. I grew up in that sort of 70s era of glamour empowerment with Charlie's Angels and Ambionic Woman. So it was like, you know, it was, I, I didn't realise it was something that not everyone felt, um, that kind of confidence and, and, and being empowered. Um, certainly helped me get into the industry because, you know, whenever bad behaviour was around me, I either thought they were joking. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, <laughs> or I'd be like, oh, you're a fucking asshole," and rack off, you know, just sort of Teflon. Um, and so sort of now approaching this book and this history and sort of uh, wanting to bring in how I see witchcraft, which I just don't find nearly enough in, in witch-related fiction, most of which I just, I just can't do, um, try as I might. Um, it's become something that I have been conscious of being conscious about in terms of how we're going to portray these characters, who they're going to be, how they're going to fuck up, because it's going to happen. Um, and how their, how their history uh, as a line of women, um, which you'll see in our, in our family tree, that there's no mention of who the dads are. Because <laughs> it's, it's, not, not only is it the female line, um, a lot of these women are giving birth for, you know, not for family building, but for next to kin, for, for the, the, the next generation, and the men are kind of superfluous. Um, <laughs> Eat that, men! Um, but, yeah, that's sort of, that's become a... a, a that, that is very much going to be part of the long-form narrative. It will... Like with most things that I really like drawing and, and referencing and how Greg likes writing is that it's all in the subtext and it's all in the context rather than in the plot. Though there will be bits and pieces that will play out that way. Thanks for listening. For more episodes featuring other storytellers from the Graphic Festival, subscribe to Graphic on iTunes. The theme music for the graphic podcast is by Dan Shepard. 
Graphic Festival is a presentation of the Sydney Opera House.